Well, I'd say we nailed that again. Yep. Kobe. (laughs) (laughs) R.I.P. The New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast, featuring your hosts, Gabe Reinick and Ken Holyoke. Welcome back to the Brunswick Archaeology Podcast. I am Gabe Reinick, and I am in Manchester, New Hampshire, where I'm surrounded by, that's right, friends, the first in the nation. That's not the nation you're in, but it's the nation I'm in, uh, presidential primary for the Republican uh, Party here. Oh, right. That's right. The um, is, it, is that this weekend? Oh, uh, it's uh, it's early next week, but so the, the rioting starts this weekend. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I don't want to alarm you, but I saw, I think I saw Nikki Haley stacking tires outside of my house here to set on fire. Oh, wow. That's good. That's yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But enough about me. I'm joined as I am every fortnight by uh, Ken Holyoke, and he's in Lethbridge, Alberta. How are you, Ken? Uh, I'm doing well. We have we have thawed out from the minus uh, 50s into the minus 20s um, and have a nice, nice layer of snow or two uh, down. And it's uh, it's looking lovely out there. So um, that's fantastic. And uh, we'd like to wish the listener a happy new year. Yeah, this is our first recording in the new year. Is that correct? This is our first recording in the new year. And uh, we have a real uh, treat for the listener, but more about that in a few minutes. Um, To start off, we'd just like to thank our sponsor, the APANB, the Shirk Exchange Grant Program, and the Office of Research and Innovation Services, or ORIS, at uh, University of Lethbridge. Yes, the kind sponsors that that are facilitating uh, this uh, this program bi-weekly or fortnightly, and uh, and also... um, uh, part of the reason that we have some very exciting news to announce. That's right. And is that news, Ken, that the Balvany Scotch Company has just sent us a barrel and asked us to promo it on this program? Unfortunately, not yet, but uh, we continue to reach out to them. And I think if we keep saying the name enough times, one of the algorithms will will uh, will push it towards them. Right, right, right. Uh, the, um, so, so it's not the Balvany Scotch Company. Uh, so it must be, uh, is it the Spindrift Sparkling Water Company? I've never even heard of that. Oh, it's delicious. It's a it's a fine New England product. So that's Drinking not a. One. So you're off the Lacroix. Oh well, I mean th- this one's got real juice in it. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah, no. So it 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 um it complements perfectly the flavor profile of a glass of Cuvassier. Uh yes, it is. So you you and it just cuts the uh, um cuts the grain alcohol a little bit. It does. It absolutely does. So um so what is our exciting news, Ken? Well. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, audience of the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast, we have sort of uh, hinted at this for some time, uh, but we have official plans. We even have a poster, uh, which you might be looking at on the internet uh, when this uh, when this goes live. That's right. Uh, but the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast is coming to you live in Fredericton, New Brunswick on Tuesday, February 20th at the Picaroons Roundhouse um, in the Riverside Room at Picaroons. And uh, we will be doing... Uh, an evening of New Brunswick archaeology, I believe, is the title of the uh, of the event. I think um, it is. And we'll be starting out with a uh, reception uh, at six o'clock. Uh, uh, I'll be doing a, a public lecture uh, for anybody in attendance between uh, six thirty and seven thirty. We're going to have a short intermission, and then we're going to do a live New Brunswick archaeology podcast recording, and the same in the same room with Gabe and I uh, between seven thirty and. Or between eight and eight forty-five, I think it was. Uh, 
listener, you should check the poster. But yeah, it's yeah, something like yeah. that. If you show up for the for the first part and you just stick around, um... yeah. And this is uh, this is an entirely free event, uh, right. so um, I think we can pack as many people in there as they will allow on a Tuesday evening. Um, Five forty kitchen will be open, so if you want some snacks uh, and pick runes, will be pouring their delicious craft beer as well. They were kind enough to give us the venue um, to host you guys, and uh, we're looking really we're really looking forward to it. So we're pulling some of the programming together and. I'm uh, pulling my talk together, and I'm sure you That's gents right. are waiting for me to give you a name of what that talk is going to be. And <laughs> I hadn't even thought about it, actually, Ken. I was, uh, and, and listener, you should know. Ken said we have we have a poster. That's not that's not entirely true. We have ten posters. That's right. We really splurged on this. There's going to be posters all over town. In fact, we have twenty now because I think you you got ten printed, yeah. and I got I, and I got ten printed from oh a, from another company that we would love to have sponsorship from, Sticker Mule. Yeah, absolutely. Sticker Mule, if you're listening, uh, we will we will mule some stickers for you. <laughs> they uh so so this is exciting news listener, and we and we really would love to see you out there actually. It's it's always um uh I, I get a thrill whenever we meet one of our uh, one of our listeners. So it's uh or or more, in fact. However many of our listeners we meet is great. Uh and we're really looking forward to uh to chatting with you. And and Ken makes it out east so rarely these days now that he's ensconced in uh in that other province that we don't talk about. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so alongside the talks and everything, um, so the live show will be, will follow a very similar format to what you guys, uh, have come to expect. Unfortunately, it'll only be 45 minutes long because I don't think we should really subject you to a two hour conversation with Gabe and I, uh, but, um, but Ken, uh, I believe thing, we have an option for a two hour conversation, which I assume is that we will just hang out at the bar after. Yeah, yeah, or yeah. you know, walk back across the train bridge and and have a continue to have conversations uh, with anybody who's who's interested. Yeah. But um, uh, the survivors. It wouldn't be the new. It wouldn't be the new Brunswick Archaeology podcast uh, if we weren't giving away uh, incredible prizes uh, to our listeners. And so uh, we are actually joined tonight uh, who uh, with a, a gentleman who will also be a guest on the show this evening. But um, to announce that at that live show, we still have. One of those highly coveted, uh, blinged out Eco4 gift bags. And so Trevor Dow, who is on the line right now, could you tell us a little bit more about this last Eco4 prize pack? Yeah, East of the Rockies, you're on the air. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Uh, also north of uh, the Willisook and uh, and uh, east of the Nashwalk. I'm on the air. And um, directly yeah, under uh, his kitchen. <laughs> exactly yeah yeah no actually i'm directly under my wood stove right now technically oh nice but, uh, yeah that's besides things but yes we still have one of the eco four uh gifts up uh for grabs and as ken said we're going to be giving that away at the uh live show on february 20th right right that's correct day, right? tuesday february 20th uh, that's right uh, and that includes one of those uh, um, very swanky uh, Eco4 uh, branded uh, Marshalltown trowels um, that uh, Ken had mentioned previously, uh, as well as a hat. And um, I think we have uh, a whole pile of stickers in that gift pack as well. Um, and who knows what else we might scrounge up between now and uh, and the twentieth to uh, to slide in there as well. But uh, but yeah, that's uh, the main part of. Uh, of that that draw or that giveaway i should say 
Trevor, I can't tell you how excited I am to pull that prize pack out of my Eco Four backpack for the lucky listener, <laughs> and, yeah, uh, and and hand that on. It's it's going to be very exciting for all of us. And uh, are we yeah. going to do a raffle? Is that how we're going to do it? Uh, I don't know. Um, there's there's some logistics we'll probably have to figure out here. We also have to listener. Uh, I'm not sure if you know this listener, but setting up a live podcast apparently is a a different audio experience, and so. Um, Gabe and I will have the pleasure of sorting out new audio recording software over the next month uh, that will uh, will certainly be um, an effortless transition from uh, from what is the program I use now? <laughs> Garage Clip Band, Ch- Clip Champ, Clip Champ. <laughs> All right. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, well, and this is going to be exciting. It is. And are we forgetting anything? The only thing. Um, are we forgetting anything to announce about it? I don't know. No, I th- I think that's everything, which is just we will see you at Pickaroons. Pickaroons. So 6 to 9 p.m. on Tuesday, no- uh, February 20th. Um, and uh, no tickets required. Uh, just uh, uh, come on out and we would love to see you for any part of the evening. Um, and if you want to stay for the whole evening, that's fantastic. We're looking forward to meeting you all. Um, anybody who's able to come and uh, certainly invite your friends. And uh, um, And if you have anything that you're interested in us, like a topic suggestion that you'd like us to kind of center on that evening or somebody you'd like us to maybe try to get on the show to interview that evening. Uh, we're more than happy to take suggestions over the next couple of weeks. So we have some ideas, but um, we obviously, this is, we're doing a public show uh, and a live show uh, to bring the show to you guys. And so we would love to hear from our listeners on uh, what they would like to hear. That's right. And lots of thanks to the folks at Pickaroons for, uh, for letting us do this. We really appreciate yeah, it. Totally. Yep. Yeah, well, Ken, so um, it's possible that at that time, we're still going to be known as the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast, but there is an opportunity here that we could be named something um, something entirely different by the time that show rolls around. And so, Ken, um, we've, we've been doing this for a while, but we've, we've been, you know, we still just haven't settled on that, that perfect name uh, for this podcast. But if the listener, we're going to, we're going to let them know in a minute here what the prize would be. But if the listener had the perfect name for this podcast, where would they email it to? Uh, they would send that email to newbrunswickarchaeology at gmail.com. That's newbrunswickarchaeology, all one word, archaeology spelled A-R-C-H-A-E-O-L-O-G-Y, newbrunswickarchaeology at gmail.com. That's right, listener. And um, and so if you were to win, uh, we can give you a little summary here this fortnight of uh, of of what would happen uh, to you. So, um, so Ken, uh, this is a time where many of us make uh, New Year's resolutions, and and often those New Year's resolutions involve trying to take control of our health. And uh, I don't know about you, Ken, but every time I log onto my Facebook page and I see that picture of us, I don't know, seven years ago, shirtless at my birthday party wearing matching swim trunks, <laughs> I think to myself, "Wow, Gabe, you were a different shape back then." But Ken, um, I think uh, I think you we were also both... graduate students and and didn't really have the money to eat enough to get ourselves out of shape. I think was the part of the challenge. No, we didn't. There was a, there was so much hair and so little fat back in those yes, days. Yes, exactly. There? Yeah. And um, and but but there are any number of reasons that you might try to take control of your health um, this time of year. Um, you might want to feel. You might just want to feel better. You might be concerned about your longevity, and you might be just concerned about uh, your health. Um, you might want to live a little longer. Um, or maybe you just want to make sure that if you encounter that ex-grad school girlfriend at the SAA this year, she feels at least some sense of regret when she sees your chiseled physique checking out the uh, the poster session. 
Um, but for many of us, one of the most important reasons is that the field season is ahead. And uh, like Crash Davis said, I'm just happy to be here. I hope I can help the ball club is the kind of attitude we encourage you to convey and to prepare for uh, in uh, in the offseason. That's right. You've got to take care of yourself so you can put out a winning effort uh, out there when you're in the field. Uh, so what we've got here for you, listener, if you're the if you're the winner tonight, is a specially designed exercise partnership between the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast and the official athletic trainer of the podcast. And and we can't let you on their name, but um, I can tell you, the uh, they worked extensively with the uh, Canadian Olympic fencing team as well as women's water polo. So this this is the sort of person just designed to get you perfectly in shape for the field season ahead. And what we've done is we've collaborated to bring some of the exercises we do, uh, Ken and I, to keep ourselves lithe and trim in the offseason and make sure we give it our best shot and the good Lord will and things will work out. So, okay, what you're going to get if you win, you get a dozen Zoom sessions with uh, with the aforementioned coach, our trainer, and you're going to get a duffel bag of the tools you need to do those sessions and to maintain a lifetime of Archeo Fitness. Wow. So are you ready for this? You ready for this, Archeo Fitness, I like that term. That's right. It's um, it uh, it's a patent pending. So you just you just sit tight on that. <laughs> um, but so what you're going to find in this duffel bag, listener, if you win, um, is the the first item we have. It's going to be a weighted sleeve, and this weighted sleeve fits on the handle of your shovel. And you may have been at at a at a baseball game, and you see the guy in the on deck circle loosening up with with one of those weighted sleeves on his bat. And the one we've got is made by the Rawlings Company. It's actually, you know, it's it's it really is basically one of those sleeves you see the guys using in the on deck circle. And what you do is you just slip this on the handle of your shovel, uh, and it's going to add 24 ounces. And so for our imperial audience, that's 84 cups to your shovel. <laughs> and uh, and then what you're going to do is this winter when you're shoveling snow, uh, you're going to want to do 10 reps with the weight, and then 10 reps off the weight. So so 10 okay. shovels yep. with the weight on, 10. Um, off and you just keep alternating that pattern until your driveway is cleared um the way this works is through the theory of complex training which alternates the use of heavier and lighter weights to increase explosive power to get you through the roots uh that you might encounter when you're digging a test pit uh this exactly next season. yeah and it's, and it's all about repetitions it's not about it's not about bulk mass it's about uh, repetition that's right or, or reps as we like reps, to call them yeah, in the in yeah. the fitness world um and so by increasing the number of motor units that you've recruited uh, the training increases your muscle performance, and you're just going to really, you know, be slicing through even the thickest root, um, like it's unsalted cow's cream butter. Uh, come come spring, okay. So so that I know that's exciting. I know we've even got listeners chomping at the bit, even with that. But next in the bag, what we have is a jump rope, um, and this is kind of important because uh, test pits aren't really just about power. You're going to need agility and speed too. Um, and it, a nice touch about this jump rope is that we've actually done the handles. Uh, to be the handles of the jump rope are actually handles from a Marshalltown trowel. Excellent. So, yep. so even the person swinging the rope is getting a certain just just you're increasing um, a little added practice with your with your trowel form while you're swinging yep. the rope. Building those the all we, essential calluses. Yeah, exactly. It's it's really crucial. And the, and the drill we do here is and you're going to need a couple partners for this. Uh, and then what you do is you take your shaker screen, take the legs right off and you're going to load your screen up with something heavy. Um, a couple of copies of Ken's master's thesis works really well here. <laughs> and you, you throw this in the screen and, uh, and all you do is you just, you just screen that dissertation uh, while jumping the rope. So you just sit there, screen a few copies of that, uh, keep jumping the rope. You get a nice little aerobic workout and you're going to strengthen some of those key um, archeology span muscles. But 
So speaking of archaeology muscles, um, we've talked a little bit about just some of the exercises you can do, but um, but Ken, um, what's the most important uh, muscle for an archaeologist? The brain. Oh, see, I thought you were going to say it's the liver, um, but you're totally right. It is the brain. <laughs> and so the, the final thing that we're going to throw in this in this double bag for you is we have a pack of 50 flashcards that have just uh, right angle triangles on them. And on each one of these flashcards with a right angle triangle, one of the legs is going to be missing a measurement. Um, and we they're actually they're, they're set very nicely against a series of, of surveying backdrops. You know, we've got woods. We've got beach, we've got highway, we've got we've got roadside in Buktouche. And then your goal is you you do these with a partner and then you you rapidly fill in the the leg that's missing uh, using the theories of Pythagoras. And uh, you're going to be in prime surveying shape for spring. So listener, don't miss out on this offer uh, and make sure that, that come this spring, you're ready for whatever the field season is going to throw at you and you are prepared uh, to tackle it and give it your all. And Ken, if the listener has the winning entry... This fortnight, where would they send it? They are going to send it to newbrunswickarchaeology at gmail.com. That is newbrunswickarchaeology, all one word, archaeology spelled A-R-C-H-A-E-O-L-O-G-Y, newbrunswickarchaeology at gmail.com. That's right, listener. And we look forward to seeing your entries there. And Ken, so if you're sitting in front of that email address, what happens to, to be in that uh, in that mailbag this uh, this fortnight? Well, we do have some mail in the mailbag. But the first thing I wanted to do was draw attention to Something that I think we maybe should have announced at the start of the show, which is that uh, as of 12.01 a.m., so in about 10 minutes for you gentlemen uh, on the other side of the the continent, uh, we will be entering into our podcast anniversary. January 19th, 2023 was the official launch date of the first episode of the New Brunswick Archaeology podcast. And so... We have gone an entire calendar year. Uh, this is our, I, th- I believe, our twenty seventh episode. So we've actually been we produced more episodes than there have been fortnights. I think since we started rolling, which is okay, because uh, I think there'd be twenty six fortnights. Would there not be in a I, calendar? I guess year? in a year there would be. Yeah. Yeah. So um, pretty pretty remarkable pace, um, and uh, and I think that's uh, pretty exciting news actually. So that is uh, very exciting news. We, we've crested over 5,000 listens um, and trending on on and up out of there, which is, I think, well beyond, as we, we had uh, mentioned last time. But uh, pretty neat that this will uh, this will potentially air uh, a day or two after our official one-year uh, podcast anniversary. So some congratulations. And uh, and I'll add in some uh, fireworks noises here or something. Like That's that. right. And feel free to email about where to send the anniversary gifts. Where, uh, exactly. exactly. Kettle check those and get the address to you uh, from. Yeah. So uh, dusting off the mailbox, um, the first thing I need to do is is a bit of a it's not an erratum as much as an apology. And that is to Ricky, our listener, who I promised to send stickers to. Oh. I It looks like since in November. Um, oh, no. And so, Ricky, you'll be getting stickers and I'm going to try to find something else to send to you as well uh, for, for being a dedicated yeah. listener. Sincere apologies, Ricky. Uh, sincere, sincere apologies, Ricky. That is entirely my fault. Um, and, uh, uh, we will, we will ensure, uh, some, uh, some podcast swag coming your way. So, um, onward and forward. So we get our podcast, uh, our podcorn emails and, and, uh, the first listener email that we have is from our, uh, our listener Wally, um, who says, uh, hi, Gabe and Ken. 
These last few episodes have been fantastic. I particularly enjoyed the two interviews on collector relationships, despite finding them somewhat humbling. In CRM, I regularly run into people who want to show the crew pictures of things they found or ask us to interpret elements of their collections for them. These things are rarely artifacts. I'm just going to move this over here. Uh, and my supervisors usually handle questions from the public. But going forward, I'll try harder not to laugh at people insisting that modern animal bones are proof that Denny Sovins made it to North America. <laughs> Regarding your request a few episodes back for a season two bingo card, I promise I have one in the works. Going is a little slower this time oh, wow. because I was still catching up when I started the first one, and I feel like season one exhausted my funniest observations, <laughs> so suggestions are welcome. Okay, since you are now basically a food podcast as well as an archaeology <laughs> one, perhaps you can settle an intense running argument among the crew I worked with this year. Which style bagel is better, New York or Montreal? Cheers, Wally. Well, Wally, unequivocally, Montreal. That is my answer. Um, they, so I, Gabe... my answer actually was going to be, Wally, that I think you've stumbled upon the one um, food uh, where you've got, you know, you, you really can't say this about, about many foods where, where they are, I think, an equal but different um, product. I think they're both pretty good. Um, and I, I think it's just sort of interesting that they developed independently into uh, equally good food groups. Yeah, yeah. I, I So I don't mind... A New York bagel. You want to use them differently. Yeah. And I mean, like, you don't want to have like a bagel and locks on a New York bagel. I agree. I feel like it's more of a peanut butter and jam, maybe a cream cheese and jam. Or a sandwich. Kind of bagel. Or a sandwich. Yeah. A yeah bagel it makes witch. a great sandwich. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, because the hole in the Montreal bagels is almost too big to support an egg properly. It is. Um, yeah. But it it does. Uh, it, it handles some smoked salmon just just wonderfully. Yeah. I mean, the um, other product I think is primarily the New York one is the everything bagel, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've it's never the all dressed chip of, of bagels. Yeah. And I've, never, I've yeah. actually never been. I'm, I'm more of a in regardless of which variety is I'm, I'm really a, a sesame seed bagel. Uh, and that's my that's my endorsement right there. Although. But you um, say it bagel. Bagel. Yeah. Trevor, how do you say this food product? Can we get you to chime oh, in? Oh, it's 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 bagel for sure. Yeah, it's a bagel. For That's sure. what I thought. Yeah. No, no, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. Yeah, okay. Um, whatever whatever and, you say. Uh, and, and so what's great, so Montreal bagels are obviously um, tough to get out on the prairies, um, but there's a, a bagel company in Calgary that I want to do a shout out to, and that is Wayne's Bagels. Oh, yeah. um, and they make uh, they make uh, their bagels uh, in the Montreal style. It, when you walk in there, it's like walking into Saint Viator or um, oh, nice. or one of the other like Montreal bagel factories. They've got the uh, you know the big tub with all the ones, and then they get the big fireplace and the long paddles that they fish them out of the fire uh, out of the oven with. And so you can go in there any day of the week and get uh, a fresh bag of bagels. Uh, in a paper bag and then they give you the plastic bags to take with them. So, oh, right on. so Wayne's nice. bagels for any listeners out here on the prairies, uh, uh, downtown Calgary. And they're also at the farmer's markets, but, uh, I'll, I'll give them a shout out. Cause, uh, right on. uh, if, if, uh, and, uh, and Wally, if you're ever in Calgary, uh, you can get a Montreal bagel, but, uh, yeah. And Wally, let us know what your favorite is too, because I'm curious because so, so Wally is, is a Vermont, New Brunswick, Ontarian, which is a, you know, a, quite a mashup. So the yeah, uh, so I'm curious what Wally's taste in bagels are, and and uh, and uh, and what is your, um, what would you be your pronunciation guide for bagel? Not to... yeah, we should get we should get a phonetic spelling from Wally on this too. Yeah. 
But yeah, but I, yeah, I, I think they're both. Um, I think it's a weird uh, one of those. It's maybe the only instance of these two different foods by the same name that are that are delicious. Yeah. Um, and uh, filtering through, we have uh, another email, and this is from Michael. Michael says, hi, Ken and Gabe. Since a number of your recent episodes have touched on the topic of artifact repatriation, I thought I'd share this story story from Border State, North Dakota, in case you hadn't seen it. Oh, cool. This link is from Inside Higher Ed, which I think you should be able to open. It's a short item. There is a link to a longer piece from the North Dakota newspaper, but I was unable to open that due to a paywall. Uh, Happy New Year. Keep up the good work, Michael, uh, in Vermont. And so Michael sent us an article yeah. that is, University of North Dakota plans to return tribal remains um and cool. it looks like uh the university is complying with their uh, nagpa requirements um they've spent about two years cataloging everything that they had in collaboration with affected tribes um and uh it was reported actually originally in propublica um, oh the nagpa um uh, oh, okay. No, doing, it's, assume, it's right? yeah, it's referencing referencing the ProPublica series. Awesome. Um, so I'll uh, I'll flip this your way, Gabe, and we'll add this to the show notes. Show notes. And, yeah. Um, track down the other article that he references in that email. So thank That's you. Great. Um, thank you once again, Michael, for, yes. for writing in. Thank you, Michael. And Ken, we should actually put the NAGPRA, um, the SAA, because so for the listener might know in, I think, December, NAGPRA was uh, modified slightly. Oh, yeah, the um, fact sheet. The and, yeah, and, to, and, yeah. Yeah. And we should throw the NAGPRA um, fact sheet uh, update into the show notes so you can get a sense of how the laws changed. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, um, a, kind of a perfect segue right there, because one of the things that um nagbra has made changes on is uh as it relates to collections um uh basically managed or held by crm companies um if if they received covid funding we should say if they, oh is that it's specifically if they, if they received covid funding yeah because that that would articulate that technically becomes federal funding so if you're right. a crm okay. company in the united states and you got say a, a ppp a payroll protection loan um during covid you are under nagpra now yeah yeah so um so probably some interesting implications and and uh you heard gabe mention an acronym there crm uh which stands for cultural resource cultural resource management um which is uh both a an incredibly broad field in in heritage uh throughout the world um usually it can refer to anything from archaeological sites to uh historic buildings to cultural landscapes um, but in North America in particular, cultural resource management um, refers to a particular subfield of archaeology, basically, um, which is essentially impact assessment archaeology or professional archaeology. Um, in other parts of the world, it's sometimes called heritage management or heritage resource management. But uh, CRM is the is the lingo here in uh, North America, has been since the early 70s. Um, and, and Ken, uh, am I right that CRM is the reason why we are joined by the Baron of Barker's Point? The Sage of the North Side, our own exactly. Trevor Dow. Yes, yeah. And so, uh, Gabe, do you want to you want to introduce Trevor, who who has been on the show before and has appeared already in this episode? But uh, uh, why don't we tell the listener uh, Trevor's uh, Trevor's deep history in in the CRM in New Brunswick? That's right, listener. He's not just a handsome man; he's a powerful man. And our guest today is Trevor Dow, and he is currently a senior archaeologist with EcoFour Consulting. And he's direct cultural resource management or CRM archaeology work in New Brunswick for about two decades. Is that right, Trevor? That is correct. 
And uh, in addition to his work for Ecofor, he's completing a graduate degree at the University of New Brunswick, rapidly, we hope, uh, where he also teaches. Uh, and so, uh, Trevor, we are delighted to have you back on the program. Thanks. I'm, uh, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. You are. Uh, the pleasure is all ours, Trevor. Don't you <laughs> worry. Yes, yes, it is. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and so we're... That, that new title of Baron of Barker's Point with uh, with particular pride. Thank you for that. That's good. You're yeah. welcome. The uh, and so the listeners should know that um, uh, to Trevor as a as a practicing CRM archaeologist and and Ken, um, what is your official? You have some CRM role at uh, Lethbridge. Yeah, so I'm the I'm the coordinator of our cultural resource management graduate program, which is a a new program at at University of Lethbridge. Um, I also teach a class called cultural resource management. I've taught a version of that class at U of T and at UNB. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, um, and, and part of that is that my career prior to, um, getting, uh, into academia was, uh, I worked in CRM and, and among one of the first positions I held was, uh, uh, Trevor was the big boss man who in my younger days picked me up, uh, sort of a soggy mess on Monday and dropped me off on Friday <laughs> afternoons and, and, uh, still a soggy checked, mess, but dropped yeah, you off. And, yeah, and checked in on me in the weekends sometimes just to make sure I was going to be be okay to go on Monday. So um, I owe a lot of my career to and my success to Trevor. So um, it's 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 a pleasure to have him on here to talk about CRM. Yeah, uh, you know, you know, you, when you were talking about how long um, we had uh, we'd lasted as a podcast, I was reminded of that line from from Animal House uh, when they, when they say that uh, Delta House has a long history of existence. <laughs> yeah it's possible that that ken holyoke also has a long history of existence you know so, exactly yeah <laughs> so yeah. so listener i've done much less crm than these gentlemen have but i've I've worked in crm uh in new england in the mid-atlantic and i at least nominally have a crm company um i say nominally because i actually haven't been very good at collecting the money i've been owed for the last <laughs> the last year <laughs> but so so this means that i'll be i think i'll probably be mostly the host here and you guys will will handle answering most of the questions if uh and then, and I think the listener will probably appreciate that because you two know what you're talking about, and I don't. So, if we could just start off with, um, what is CRM? Uh, and I was thinking, you know, what kind of projects require it? Who does CRM? Uh, and what sort of percentage in Canada of the overall archaeology work does it represent? As uh, Ken said in in the the opening there too, like I guess before we dive right into it, like what are, what are we talking about with cultural resources, right? That we're talking about things like uh, archaeological sites or cultural landscapes or even uh, like ethnographic resources, um, um, you know, uh, historic and prehistoric structures and even uh, museum collections like uh, we were just talking about with NAGPRA. Um, and I think, um, you know, we've talked about this before, I think, uh, uh, Ken and, and, and Gabe too, but like, uh, we think of these things like as cultural resources, as resources. I think that's one of the best ways to look at one of the best lenses to look at uh, material culture through as as a resource, you know, and like other resources like oil or natural gas or whatever rare earth elements like these things are finite, right? And they're non-renewable. So we we have a, I think, a, a, a public interest in managing them, right? So, um, but again, not to get too far into the weeds, I guess, first thing, but, uh, you know, the simplest answer is, is CRM is, is, uh, is what we refer to, I think, uh, first and foremost, as sort of commercial salvage archaeology. You know, it's the 
archaeology that's completed by uh, you know, mostly by private companies to meet, you know, uh, government regulatory requir requirements for, you know, commercial uh, gain for those companies, essentially. Um, it's, uh, it's, you know, what I often refer to uh, uh, my students as, you know, uh, a presence and absence exercise in a lot of senses, you know, or, you know, are there cultural resources present within a a particular location that you know is being developed and that you know the archaeologist is investigating yeah. um yeah it's, it's yeah. basically a compliance driven industry where um you're working under legislative uh uh sort of a legislative structure so in canada um these are under provincial or territorial statutes uh where they will have heritage legislation so new brunswick it's the heritage conservation act which was passed in 2010 and i and uh the the Historic Places Protection Act or something before that. I can't remember what the name of it was specifically. Yeah, that's correct. That predated that. Um, and uh, basically the in, in New Brunswick, uh, to use the case, we'll kind of focus on a New Brunswick mm -hmm. case study. Yep. Uh, the trigger, the projects that would require it, um, and, and CRM kind of as an industry has sort of existed since around 1987, um, which was when the Clean Environment Act was passed. Um, and so... Uh, cultural resource management or CRM in New Brunswick is conducted as part of the environmental impact assessment process. And so um, the regulatory agency in New Brunswick is, is in the tourism heritage and culture department. It's called, which is the, THC. The, THC. Yep. Yeah. The, uh, uh, so, so I was thinking actually a good title for the episode would be all the acronyms. Uh, <laughs> uh, so so <laughs> I, th I thought you were uh, going to say it should be just THC. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, so uh, the New Brunswick and I'm going to get this wrong. Uh, the Heritage and Archaeological Services Branch is the new is the current name. Um, is correct, the yeah. regulatory body in New Brunswick, um, housed within within uh, uh, THC, um, and so they essentially regulate the industry using the Heritage Conservation Act and a number and some regulations. They also have guideline documents, basically that prescribe how this work takes place. Um, CRM is different than research uh, oriented archaeology. Um, uh, Trevor can speak a little bit more about that when we get kind of a little bit deeper into things here. Um, but the kinds of projects that require it in, in New Brunswick in particular are projects that trigger an EIA process or projects that the regulatory office um, deems sort of meets a threshold as a potentially encountering um, or uh, disturbing or altering archaeological or heritage resources. And so there's definitions for all of those things in the Heritage Conservation Act. Um, and to alter them or to disturb them knowingly is actually a violation of the act. Um, and so CRM archaeologists have, you know, uh, uh, robust training um, to go in and to identify these things. And, and like Trevor said, a little bit more of a presence absence exercise because the work that you're doing is driven by a project. And so um, CRM archaeologists are doing archaeology for highways, for pipelines, for hydroelectric dams, for, um, in some cases, municipal de developments, um, in some provinces, uh, due to forestry development. So I worked in BC and CRM, um, and that was uh, uh, doing work for forestry developments. Um, so uh, the industry is growing. Um, Trevor, you you have probably the best grasp on, on uh, uh, how big it is in New Brunswick, uh, based on the kind of the work that you've done. Um, but uh, I think broadly, we're looking at like 90 to 95% of the archaeology in North America is now CRM. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, looking at um, the research that I, I've undertaken, you know, looking at 
um, how much it's grown over the last 40 or so years, um, you know, since about 2012, when the new or the, 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 the current uh, guidelines um, for conducting archaeological research were, were published. Um, CRM has grown to represent uh, 97% of the total archaeological investigations going on in the province. Yeah, uh, which is yeah. which is I I don't think uncommon in a lot of jurisdictions. No, I, no, you know, this is a trend that's not really unique to New Brunswick. We're you know we see similar numbers across Canada and you know into the United States as well, um, where you know this is becoming the bulk of uh, the work that's uh, being undertaken in 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 our discipline. And so could you guys um, catch us up just a little bit on how CRM came to be, you know, sort of what is the history of, of CRM and here in uh, North America, here in Canada, sorry, there in Canada tonight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, it, it, in, in the United States in particular, it has sort of uh, uh, a long and complex his history that's sort of intertwined with legislation dating, you know, back as far as, you know, the Antiquities Act in uh, mm -hmm. 19, what was that? 1906. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the roots of sort of modern regulated compliance CRM in the CRM industry sort of began under um, the auspices of the National um, Historic Preservation Act in 1966 and yeah. um, the Parks Act in what was that 1961, I think, National Parks Act. Um, but, you know, the, these these legislation uh, allowed for, you know, the hiring of uh, private archaeological companies for development projects on federal land and particularly in national parks. Mm -hmm. uh, this industry was sort of the, you know, the driving force too through a lot of that time and in, in, in field work and site identification, particularly in the United States where, you know, been as far back as, you know, the mid to the late seventies, you know, there were, you know, expressions uh, and concerns about, you know, the lack of what, what Binford referred to as, as theory oriented, collection of data right and right um you know this sort of what they saw as the the crux or the dynamic between crm and 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 academic archaeology is sort of being this sort of strategic conflict almost uh but yeah yeah so, so you point to a couple of interesting things and, and one of those things is the the federal nature sort of bizarrely of archaeology in the united states compared to the provincial nature yeah. Um, of archaeology in Canada and also this tension between academic or what you often call problem-oriented um, archaeology. Uh, am, am I right, Trevor, with that, that big a phrase that you've... Uh, did you invent yeah. that phrase? Uh, I, 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 maybe. I don't, I don't really know. It's just what I... The, the term, I guess, I prefer to use. I mean, you could make the argument that all archaeology is problem oriented you're trying to make a solution of something but that's um, right listener you heard it but, here first all of archaeology is a problem <laughs> crm is here to stamp it out yeah exactly. but, the, but the the distinction between the the federal uh uh legislation is an interesting one like you know like in the states yeah. you had like you know like we've talked about this on the show before that archaeology has kind of tapped into nationalistic sentiments in the past right and and you know and and as a a colonial discipline sort of has been a driving force behind behind reinforcing nationalistic tendencies in 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 various countries, and certainly that was the case in in at least the United States and to a certain extent in Canada as well, right? What was driving sort of you know nineteenth century 
antiquarianism and and preservationist movements. Um, you know, the first things that were being protected by legislation were Civil War battlefields and George Washington's house in the States. Um, in, in Canada, it was like the Plains of Abraham and um, and Abraham and for the American listener is essentially the Canadian George Washington. <laughs> well, it's uh, it's where uh, Wolf took a uh, took a cannonball to the belly as uh, uh, like the two solitudes met. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, I think the uh, but, band summed that up for us. Uh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but uh, but what it was, you know, and and so in both countries, even in the early 20th century, you had um, heritage protection of what were seen as these sort of emblems of national identity. Right. So it's, you know, particularly uh, historically significant figures, um, uh, or, uh, what they, what was viewed as sort of historically significant moments in, in sort of these new nations. And so in Canada, you know, as a new, uh, a nation born of these two solitudes, the Plains of Abraham was sort of where this battle, where the showdown basically took place. Right. Um, and so what was interesting is, as, and as Trevor, uh, alluded to is that by the 1960s, the industry had changed enough that like, there was a response to basically the post second world war development. There was an acceleration of development. So, you know, hydroelectric dams are being built. Uh, the, uh, the interstate highway system is being built. Um, and in the United States, you had a legacy of, um, dating back to the antiquities act of like actual archeological legislation on top of some of this other heritage legislation. Um, and in Canada, it didn't really follow suit. Right. And so you have, the National Historic Preservation Act in the States passed in the 19, in 1966, um, which becomes a sort of critical document that effectively creates the CRM industry through the Section 106 process, mm -hmm. which um, I'm not going to get into nitty gritty details here, but I think we could probably find a really excellent 10 minute YouTube video that could uh, could summarize the Section 106 process much, much more eloquent, eloquently than I could. Um, but you have a federal legislation in the States that kind of creates a bunch of state historic preservation offices. And so each state has very similar legislation and very similar processes to the section 106 process, which is sort of the stage one, stage two, stage three that Trevor, I'm going to get you to riff on here. Um, but in Canada, we, we, we don't call them have... phase one, phase two and phase three. Yeah. Yeah. Phase. So phases yeah, yeah. or stages or however you want to, <laughs> sometimes there's a stage zero, sometimes there's a phase yeah, yeah. four. Um, but, uh, but what it, what what's happened is in the second half of the 20th century, you have um, a really formalization and professionalization of the discipline of CRM in the United States. And you have a formalization and a professionalization of archaeology in Canada, but not necessarily CRM in any kind of sort of similar pattern to the states, uh, in part because we don't have that kind of overarching federal legislation. And so each of the provinces and territories, as, as Gabe said, kind of go at this um in very similar kind of with the same goals in mind, but um, effectively pass different bodies of legislation and have different sort of regulatory structures and and prescribe archaeology in very different ways. And so um, it's a very different industry in Canada than in the U.S. other than on in the day to day stuff, which is like, you know, when you're out in the field, this is how you're doing CRM. And these are the kind of projects that you're doing it for. And I think if we could just turn to New Brunswick specifically in just one minute, but I'm I'm worried there's one thing we should fill on fill in on, which I think Ken, uh, you've thought about a lot, which is uh, Works Progress Administration archaeology during the Depression. Yeah, yeah. So, 
So I, I wasn't sure if we wanted to get like too down into the nitty gritty about about the WPA. But... That's right, listener. So... I hope you're on a long drive right now because Ken yeah. is about to talk about the WPA for about. If this is not so... in the show notes, I just noticed Ken missed it, and I assumed ordinarily I'd talk about CRM, and Ken is like, "Well, have you heard about the WPA?" Yeah, yeah. So the Works Progress Administration was basically, and I just taught this actually a couple of days ago. We were just had this lecture. Um, so it's basically foundation. It's sort of the foundations of CRM, right? And and um, the WPA. I, did a lot of things, I think, um, that kind of set the stage for CRM. So you have contract work, um, you have uh, large projects that are basically, um, in many cases, were kind of make work projects under the new, like, uh, was it Roosevelt's New Deal mm -hmm. program yeah. to get essentially out of work people in, in mostly the southeastern United States, um, in very poor counties, out like doing work. So something that will get them employed. Um, and that and on on jobs that required lots of labor, so archaeology being a fairly labor intensive thing, and and jobs that at that time they thought really required very minimal training, right? And so what was happening was that some of the sort of foundational figures in in American archaeology, so like William Webb and and Warren K. Moorhead, cut their teeth. Not on William some... Webb, friend of the program, J. Yeah, yeah, yeah William not, J. Not, Webb, yeah, 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 yeah <laughs> not William J. Webb, William S. Webb, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, sort of they they these programs established like systematic excavation techniques. Um, uh, they they really kind of wrote the culture historical sequence for a lot of the southeast. Um, we know a lot about shell mound archaic stuff because of these massive mounds that the the WPA projects would sort of systematically cut apart, doing work that we would normally never do uh, at this in this day and age. Um, and so it was it was foundational in that way, and that it set up. Also, the challenge of working under sort of budget restrictions and timelines. There's sort of these great quotes from um, I can't remember his first name, but Woshope, um, or I or I'm, I'm, might be mispronouncing it, but he's one of these archaeologists, and and he's quoted about sort of complaining about all of this, like uh, the business side of things that he had to do. You know, he had to report sort of weekly budget updates and and how many crew were out there, and 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 you know he and he kind of laments that like there's so many people out here and there's so little supervision, you know, talks about uh, uh, individuals on the crew pocketing artifacts and stuff like that. So it's not all good things, but, but there, you know, there are sort of lessons that come out of there that shape the next sort of phase of government funded archeology, span which is the, um, uh, the Missouri basin projects, um, which are hydroelectric projects in the 1950s um, that then really kind of formalize the discipline that uh, kind of comes out in the sixties and seventies. Um, and I, and I think it'd be, I'd be remiss too, if I didn't note too, that like within the, within the WPA, um, you have, um, some really interesting foundational work in archeology span by women, um, and by black, black archeologists and, and both of whom at that time, um, were working in, uh, uh, basically field disciplines that in the most cases, women and, and in particular black women were not allowed to do field work, uh, and, and had to kind of fight for the right to do that. Um, so they worked uh, mostly in labs, but some of the foundational women, um, Madeline Nayberg um, and Florence Hawley, uh, were essentially established the University of Tennessee um, uh, uh, Museum research uh, at one. And, uh, and Florence Hawley was actually one of the people who uh, championed the first uses of dendrochronology in archaeology. Oh, no kidding. Um, uh, both of whom cut their teeth doing um doing archaeology on wpa projects in the southeast so that's great if you could flip me um some kind of reference to that we'll throw that in the show notes that's cool i did not know that about dendrochronology yeah yeah um, so um so yeah so that's that's kind of like a 
a short overview of of where the where why we do it and how the industry was structured and some of the early lessons they they that came out of that. So like you have the Smithsonian trinomial system coming out during right. the Missouri Basin projects because um because of the challenges with trying to keep all of these sites separate during the yeah. WPA. And so that's where it's got a a, a number uh a county and then the sites within the the block yeah, within so the it's, county. Yeah. It's it's number letter number. So it's like an alphanumeric system. Yeah. So um, like if you're in yeah. Allegheny County, Maryland at the Barton site, it's 18 AG three or something. Something like that. Um, yeah. And uh no, that's great. Okay, cool. So um so we've talked a bit about um the United States, which is in North America, I think it's fair to say also the kind of the driver of what causes CRM to be a thing in Canada. Uh, really is, that is yeah 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 and i yeah. and i think that that was what jv wright was kind of hollering about in 1969 basically fantastic yeah. so 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 let's cut to 1969 and then just just sort of catch us up specifically in new brunswick um what's the legislation in the kind of the history of legislation why do we do crm in new brunswick uh, and when you do crm in new brunswick now what are you answering to yes yeah, so and well there's yeah. Yeah, there's been several iterations of of legislation in New Brunswick. I mean, the first was um, the Historic Sites Pro uh, Protection Act, um, which came in in 1973, I believe, um, and that was sort of New Brunswick's first, you know, provincial statute um, that governed any kind of protection of cultural heritage, um, and it sort of defined what anthropological objects were and what historic sites were, and it set up a permitting system to um, you know, to do field research and it sort of, um, uh, it also gave sort of, you know, uh, minimal or, or the minimum sort of standards that, you know, um, were acceptable for conducting that kind of work. Um, and it also established, um, you know, like a, a fine system, you know, to try to protect, um, sites from being, you know, violated, um, and things like that. Um, and then um, in uh, 1987, the Clean Environment Act came in, um, and this sort of uh, mandated the completion of uh, environmental impact assessments in, you know, advance of development projects, um, you know, that met specific environmental triggers, which I think Ken mentioned previously. But um, as a result of that amendment, the statute sort of um, increased the regulatory role of provincial archaeology branch uh, or the provincial archaeology branch and essentially spawned um, the modern CRM industry here in New Brunswick well that was sort of the impetus that sort of uh, started it here right um and you know that was the, those were sort of the, the 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 documents that everything was done under for you know whatever it was so almost three decades until um, 2010 when, uh, new legislation was enacted, the Heritage Conservation Act, um, and um, this sort of replaced the Historic Sites Preservation Act or, or Protection Act. Um, and um, it made, you know, a number of changes, um, uh, you know, particularly, I think, things to note are things like um, it, uh, it, it, you know, established a, 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 an overview of the ownership of, of certain types of artifacts, like artifacts of Indigenous origin things like that. Um, it updated legislation to sort of redefine key terminology, um, which I think was important and it sort of um, established the uh, 
a permitting system for doing paleontological work, um, which had never been done, you know, it had never been in place prior to that for the for the province. Um, and it also upped um, considerably up, you know, fines and uh, or penalties for offenses and violations to uh, uh, archaeological sites and things like that. Um, and it also introduced um, um, the uh, ministerial inspection program, um, you know, where the province could appoint um, provincial inspectors to go out and inspect archaeological work going on or work going on in the project in the province that you know, was impacting archaeological resources and things like that. Yeah, yeah, kind of gave them the, uh, it sort of empowers them to, to also like kind of issue on the spot stop orders for, for project developments, right, which I wasn't, wasn't a tool in their kit before, um, uh, before that act. And so um, it was, it's not unlike, like, I think the, the spirit of it was sort of to reflect kind of like what the environmental inspectors do, where, you know, if you are, are dumping, you know, your tailings into a, a water reservoir, uh, they can come shut off the pipe kind of thing, right? And uh, and I think that the idea was that uh, if you were actively or knowingly destroying a site, they would have the ability, they would have the legal ability to go on to um, uh, a project and just say, stop now, basically. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. There was no legislated um, rules around that prior to that. So, um, yeah, it really, you know, helped establish that sort of, um, that sort of system. And so Trevor, can we perhaps take the, uh, the other things you mentioned sort of in order here? Um, so I, I think I know the answer to ownership, which is that in sort of troubling paternalistic language, the, uh, indigenous artifacts are now held in trust by the crown. Is that the phrase? That is in fact the, the phrase. Yes. In trust. Right. And, um, but sort so, sort of till until some kind of nebulous time in the future when indigenous communities have my understanding was essentially like a, a curation facility is sort of what the the that would be kind of what triggers repatriating or re, re, rematriating uh, uh, objects yeah. or possessions like uh, like how um, some Mi'kmaq communities have been able to um, have collections return to the community. Uh, because of the Metapanagic Heritage Park, basically. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but at least until then, we've got the. Um, it is a grading phrase, isn't it? Well, I mean, from a legal standpoint, uh, there are only two times that you know you put things in trust. It's when people are uh, either um, unable to make their own intellectual decisions or. Um, when they're considered to be too juvenile to make, you know, uh, decisions, yeah. you know, uh, people yeah. under the age of under the age of consent or under the uh, the age of adulthood, and uh, you know, yeah, yeah. Is is that the third thing you go to trust if you're dead as well? Can't they? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. But yeah, so it's it's it, it's sort of you know it's this very uh, uh, paternalistic language that is you know unfortunately yeah I think. Uh, yeah, deeply tied to uh our our discipline uh you know in the yeah. past unfortunately can um, do other provinces have this language you know i i don't really know i guess i haven't i haven't read um sort of provincial legislations specifically about how collections are managed i know i i suspect in other jurisdictions there are similar like there's similar terminology but i i know you know 
I know there's much more kind of active engagement in places like BC, for example, where the governments are starting to work with Indigenous communities about basically um, communities are sort of getting sovereignty over both collections, but also the process of doing archaeology on traditional territories. Um, so I don't know if there's maybe more flexibility in those kinds of legislative situations. I know Alberta, for example, um, again, I don't know the legislation sort of intimately enough to say whether or not that language is there, but Alberta has their own actual like repatriation act, mm -hmm. um, which is sort of like an Alberta version of a, a, essentially a NAGPRA, like local um, which, NAGPRA is, which is, yeah. yeah, which is unique in Canada. Um, so, yeah. Trevor, do you know, I know you do a bit of work out West, but is, is that language, is that kind of a New Brunswick thing or? Um, it's not, um, it's not prevalent in any of the legislation that I can recall off the top of my head. Um, yeah, I think one of the important things that, and Ken kind of alluded to, too, on, on the West coast and British Columbia in particular, um, you know, um, I think has a much better grasp, uh, on this. Um, and I think that's probably in part due to the fact that they, they run a, uh, um, uh, a distributed model of a network for their, you know, museums and collections. There's mm -hmm. one central repository for all of these things. And, you know, um, communities are actively involved in, um, in the, uh, you know, the museum curation aspect of, of stuff that gets, uh, gets uh, uncovered during, you know, CRM projects and other, other projects in, in British Columbia. Yeah, that's great. I mean, cause yeah. I, and I think the the literature, which you you two guys know better than I do, I mean, is really pointing towards a decentralized model in which material is kept closer to the communities from which well, it's recovered. Yeah, just from uh, uh, like, I think from a, a practical sense, like, you know, you don't keep all of your eggs in one basket, right? Like, sure. you know, you know yeah, God forbid something horrible happened at, you know, a collection facility that, you know, ended up you know burning down or something for example yeah. like you know if you have everything in one place from that perspective alone but the i think the other important thing is you know that you know we you know as anthropologists working in 2024 we have a uh i think an ethical responsibility to work towards um re repatriating and rematriating these these artifacts to mm -hmm. communities and you know a distributed a distributed network uh, I, I think is the, is the best way to go where, you know, each community has, um, some kind of a facility where they can manage their own material culture and provide, you know, their own interpretations, um, uh, on these materials and things like that. Um, and then, you know, you have, you know, sort of, um, um, by, you know, having those distributed models too, or using those distributed models, you, um, you're you're getting that information out to a wider um, network of people too, mm -hmm. and I think that anthropology and archaeology in particular, and I think you folks have talked about this on previous episodes. You know, has kind of, um, you know, in the past had this like, uh, or has this portrayal of people who are like hoarding knowledge or things like that, right? And you know, when you have, you know, a centralized museum location that is, um, you know collecting all of this material, you know, it's, you know, it's difficult for people in more remote communities to access this stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's the, that's the have... big thing is, is the access yeah. issues. Right. And, and, you yeah. know, and it's so, and it's particularly acute when you look at like federal collections. Right. So yeah. Um, both, uh, both like the, you know, I mean like national museums have large collections from across the country. 
but also even like Parks Canada, you know, like the drive after 2012 to centralize all of Parks Canada's collections is, has presented real issues. Um, yeah. And in particularly, they're like, they're even more acute when it comes to uh, just the the sort of curation crisis, which I think we sort of yeah. broached very like gingerly, uh, I think in a previous episode, Gabe, but I mean, is deserves uh, essentially a whole episode in and of itself. But at the end of the day, what it is, is that by centralizing collections, essentially, while, while you know, governments and, and uh, institutions are paying less for a greater number of facilities, what they've done is, is they've run into these issues where there are so many things under one roof, you no longer have the capacity for these things. And so you're either distributing these things in ways that are, are immensely problematic. Like, so for example, in Ontario, where there's no collections management really at, at all. And so this stuff ends up in people's basements or you you're faced with like really troubling decisions about deaccessioning things and like what stays and what goes in your collection um, uh, when, you, when you've essentially run out of space, right? And so, and what happens to those facilities that are mothballed um, and, uh, and can you get them back and can you bring them back up to, uh, up to scale and, and redistribute these things? It's, it's not an easy solution. Yeah, and of course, these, these tales can be localized beyond Ontario, right? I mean, there's been in the media reports, both uh, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, of just an absence of space for yeah uh, for collections. And the uh, the listener may have encountered, you know, the recent CBC reports about this emphasis um, really against what what uh, what we're sort of suggesting here might be an ideal model, which is for an ultra centralized model um, in a warehouse in St. John around the New Brunswick Museum. So. Uh, yeah. These may be all issues we want to um, consider when we're when we're thinking about how to how to manage um, under this new under various permitting systems where do artifacts go um, in these questions of ownership because what does held in trust mean if it's held in trust at some remote locale right like yeah. how much well how much trust is there yeah yeah exactly. <laughs> Cool. So, so we talked a little bit about uh, some of the, the just the issues surrounding um, where artifacts ultimately go. So, but to to step back uh, for a minute, it might be useful for the listener. Just give us kind of walk us through some of the typical steps of a CRM project in New Brunswick. So you know, you you get the call from the client, they and then the yeah. the exciting music plays. It's yeah. a it's sort of like the Rocky the, soundtrack. And for the listener. These calls get more frequent in about, I don't know, but a week or so after Thanksgiving. Yeah. Uh, when, say, when there's a real, a when there's a real nip in the air. Fourth week of November. Yeah. Uh, right that's Canadian that Thanksgiving. First, yeah. yeah. Right after that first skip of snow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah so, so you get the call. Panicking. Someone's yeah. throwing a bridge in. Then what happens? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that that's generally, these are the kinds of projects that, um, CRM archaeologists work on a lot. Um, you know, uh, a, a lot of them are transportation and infrastructure related projects, you know, highways, bridges, uh, power uh, transmission and generation stations and things like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it typically begins with a, a you know, a, a call from a client or who has some sort of development project um, and they need an archaeological impact assessment completed as part of that overall process. Um, and so, you know, sort of once, you know, all of your sort of contracts and agreements are in place and, you know, the, the scope of work is sort of defined, um, you know, a typical CRM project begins like most other archaeological research projects, you know, with archival and, and background studies, um, 
you know, in some jurisdictions, we might refer to this as, you know, a phase one or a phase uh, or a stage one assessment, or, you know, some, some places now call it a stage zero. Um, um, in New Brunswick, you know, this usually would begin with, you know, consulting with the staff at, um, at Heritage and Archaeological Services branch, you know, reviewing their files, identify, you know, if there are any um, already known and registered archaeological sites or, or, or archaeological resources that are in proximity to the project area, um, you know, review their archaeological potential modeling and the site forms database and, and the manuscript files and they have, um, you know, typically during that stage, we look at things like uh, historic aerial photos from, you know, in New Brunswick, we have them back as early as the, the mid 1930s. Um, and this can sort of help um, us interpret how the landscape has changed over the last, uh, you know, 90 or so years. Um, and more recently, you know, we look at things like um, LIDAR, which is, you know, as of about, uh, I think it was 20, 2022, the we have full, complete coverage and public availability of of, of LIDAR data in New Brunswick. Um, so all of this information is not only important to us to sort of understand the the area or the project area that we're investigating, but it, it provides, you know, context of the work. And um, and when we apply for our permit, you know, we to conduct the field research, we have to provide, um, you know, the um, evidence of, of this research and, and, and the results of this research and in that application to, to get a permit. So, um, yeah, you know, once we've, you know, done that and kind of get a permit in hand, you know, we move on to, um, typically like a, what we call a pedestrian survey or a walkover. Um, and that's simply where you, you know, you know, ground truth, the project area, see what's out there, um, try to identify, um, um, you know, if there are any, you know, eroding archaeological resources or anything visible on the surface level um, and, you know, identify if there are areas of elevated potential that should be, you know, investigated further. Um, and you're kind of out there just sort of making recommendations for for further investigations, you know, like, you know, doing shovel testing or something like that. And I think the important distinction um, here is that this stage doesn't involve any ground disturbance by the archaeologist. We're simply out there to sort of investigate, to assess, and to make recommendations back to our our clients and, you know, to the provincial or territorial regulatory body that we're kind of kind of working under. Yeah. Which um, which is actually the 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 no shovels during, I guess what would be in a lot of places phase one, like so mm -hmm. when you're doing the pedestrian survey, um, is actually a bit of a uniquely New Brunswick thing. Um, cause I know yeah. that you've, uh, you know, in, in like Ontario, you can do sort of linear corridor surveys. Um, and in most cases you are doing shovel testing, um, or, or at least judgmental shovel testing to kind of evaluate subsurface conditions. I know we did that when I was in BC, we did that when I was in, uh, working up in Labrador for a stint, um, uh, in part because you can end up in these areas. So Trevor mentioned like areas of elevated potential. And so these are sort of landforms, um, or particular areas that, when you're uh, surveying work, and th and this would happen, you sort of make these judgments when you're working, doing research work as well. Um, you're sort of trying to interpret whether or not people may have camped there or <laughs> or uh, stayed there for any length of time at some time in the past. And so you make these sort of informed judgments based on all of this background research that he talked about, and maybe the local conditions. So you you've got a particularly well drained landform that looks out over a river. Um, and, uh, you know, it's nice and level, 
Um, and so, you know, it, it generally kind of the, the, if you, if it seems like it'd be a nice place to set up a tent today, um, it's probably was a pretty nice place for, you know, the last several hundred, if not several thousand years ago. Um, and so in, in New Brunswick, we would kind of map these areas off and say, these have elevated archeological potential. We're going to come back and look at these again. In some other places, you would actually dig a couple test pits to evaluate, okay, well, this looks like it's a well-drained landform, but we sunk our test pits in and actually it's like all fill. So this is not actually a well-drained landform. This is just a, a staging area for a forestry operation from the early 20th century or something like that. Can I interrupt for a minute? Uh, you guys have used the term uh, test pit a few times or what's called in the biz a shovel test pit or an STP. Don't worry, listener, you don't need an antibiotic or, for it. Or standard test pit because that's what they used to be. STPs in, in New Brunswick used to be called standard test pits. Yeah, the listeners should know that yeah, that's under wrong. the 2004 guidelines. Uh, yeah. yeah, the standard <laughs> test pit, is, it's like the old line. Uh, I think someone described Newt Gingrich as what a... Uh, a, a a dumb man's idea of what a smart man would sound like. That's the SDP abbreviation <laughs> being wrong. It just stands for shovel yeah. test pit. But what is a shovel test pit? A uh, shovel test pit is a uh, you know a, a, an exploratory hole essentially into the ground. That's uh, you know in in New Brunswick we dig fifty by fifty. Uh, 50 centimeter by 50 centimeter test bits, uh, square holes uh, down. That's what 42 inches or uh, uh, 28 and a half or something like that by 28 and a half. Yeah, yeah, I think a square yard. Yeah, Yeah, it's uh, one thirty sixth of a furlong by one thirty (laughs) sixth of a furlong. (laughs) Seventeen Yankee furlongs. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, not to be confused with imperial furlongs. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Um, but yeah, so, and, you know, we dig these down to, uh, culturally sterile material. So, you know, um, bedrock or, you know, preferably or, uh, glacial till, um, you know, material that was deposited by the, 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 the last glaciation, um, or, or some other, um, material similar and, to that, but, um, and just for our listeners. So why, why would you not expect to find cultural material in glacial till, uh, or, or like at a bedrock surface? Um, well, I mean, you could find material, I guess, on top of a bedrock surface. I mean, that's not completely unheard of. Um, you know, if it's early, um, early uh, sites, I mean, that's always possible. But um, generally, you or even find coastal anything. or coastal sites as well, coastal, or coastal yeah, sites. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say coastal sites as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, typically you wouldn't find anything in in glacial till because. Um, you know, um, that we're talking about material that was deposited um, from the bottom of, of the glaciers that were in, you know, in New Brunswick, we're talking about uh, glacial ice sheets that were in some places upwards of two kilometers thick. So you can imagine the amount of weight that's pressing down on that. So even if there were um, people here um, in, in what is now New Brunswick, you know, prior to, uh, um, you know, when the ice sheets advanced into this area, um, you know, any evidence of that would be completely uh, eradicated by uh, and we, we had this ex- Yeah, we had this explained to us by geologists because there's some really complex geology in one part of New Brunswick where you have the Wisconsin glaciation, so the Pleistocene ends and the ice sheets retreat, but then you have a re-advance of the ice sheets during what's called the Younger Dryas period, which is sort of the last vestiges of the Pleistocene, basically. And, and uh, um, so an area that was ice-free uh, then is, and where people could have lived, became iced over again and and uh one of the geologists from the province explained to us one time that uh uh when we had a question about like well why couldn't you find something 
uh, in, in between these two tills. And he said, well, I mean, it's not inconceivable that somebody came in here, but, uh, but if they did, the, the results of what they had left behind would be smashed into a very fine paste basically is, 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 yeah. is so, uh, yeah. you know, the, the, you don't have, uh, you wouldn't have objects basically surviving this. And so that's why we would stop it. That's why you would term that like culturally sterile is, is, uh, to, for the yeah. listener. Yeah, the uh, we're we're not antediluvian, but we're not pro-diluvian either. I guess is what we're <laughs> saying here. The uh, so so okay, so this is this is good. We've I think we've we've learned a lot about um, about all this. But so so Trevor, this um, distinction you've made in your thesis, which involves basically policy, which is great uh, and super interesting. You you make this distinction between CRM work and what you call problem-oriented archaeology, or uh, what what the more crass. Uh, archaeology crowd might call academic archaeology or what the very cynical crowd might call archaeology um so walk <laughs> us through uh walk us through these distinctions here uh where do you make the distinction um and, and what are the differences so yeah yeah so i think i think first it's why do we need to make this distinction and i think it's because what we as we talked about earlier that you know crm work is now sort of we, we have an understanding of what, what it involves and, and what kind of projects it's done for. But, you know, the fact that it's, you know, making up now 90 or, you know, upwards of 97% here in New Brunswick of the kind of work that's going on, um, you know, I, I think it's important to highlight the different um, um, process that it is and what the, you know, the output is and how it differs from what we might think of as, you know, um, traditional archaeology, as you put it, uh, uh, Gabe. But, um, you know, in, in CRM, you know, the, like, and, and I think Ken spoke to this a little bit previously, but, you know, the choice of locations um, that we conduct our research is, is dictated by uh, a proponent's project, right? And their project, you know, you know, um, it's this finite, you know, location, essentially, in a lot of cases, unless we're dealing with a massive linear corridor project or something like that. But, you know, and, and it's based on this presence or absence framework, right? It's, are there archaeological resources in here? Will will they impact my development? Um, and how are we going to mitigate them if we encounter them, right? And, yeah. and and as Ken said before, too, CRM is is compliance-driven, you know, and it often leads to um, very limited post-field analysis. And and ultimately, all of the, the data collection that happens um, ends up in what we refer to as the gray literature, this, you know, this sort of um, ethereal um, um, documents that end up in government um, um, repositories that become, you know, challenging to access, you know, um, for professionals and, you know, oftentimes downright impossible for members of the public. Um, and in contrast, I think, you know, when, we, when I talk about problem-oriented archaeology, uh, I'm talking about, you know, what you you know you would think of as traditional archaeology things that are uh, hypothesis driven or or as as I said previously what Binford called you know theory oriented right yeah. you know these things that are working within you know a scientific framework um, you know and this work is often publicly funded and it's broad in scope and it's you know iterative or open ended and it involves you know community participation and things like that and you know you know in addition to all those things and you know problem-oriented archaeology, um, archaeological research typically involves more significant post-field analyses. And, and those results and the results of that, that post-field work analysis are more likely to be um, 
um, shared or disseminated uh, more widely, you know, whether that's in like a peer reviewed journal or, um, or a conference presentation, or even, you know, just a, 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 a presentation at your local historic society or at your local library or museum or whatever. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. And I, yeah, I, and think-, I think you, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head that it's sort of this difference of outcomes. And, and I think that, um, Without question, you know, like it's not that CRM is anti-scientific and it's not even that they they don't produce good work. Like that's the, that's the other mm-hmm. thing is a lot of this great literature is actually really great archaeology. And it's really kind of all like critical data that, that many researchers, like those that aren't involved in a project, for example, might want to get access to or that people working in a region might be interested in or, or in seeing. And it's not even that CRM archaeologists don't participate in like conference presentations. Um, and in some cases, you know, like make the extra effort to to publish. But I think the big challenge is um, um, and and and, you know, Trevor and I have seen this kind of firsthand is that you can run into a couple things in CRM that you don't generally run into in research archaeology, which is that you you have a proponent that may actually not want you to disseminate any kind of result on that work and essentially they're paying your bills and so you are behold like uh, you you don't have the same kind of ip or intellectual property rights over the work that you're doing in crm uh, like you might uh doing research work um and and depending upon where you work or the kinds of work you're doing or how you know how much revenue your company is bringing in you might not have the support within the company you might have you might not have the time to attend a conference or you might not have the support to go to a conference we were really lucky when you and i worked together at a at a larger environmental consulting firm that um you know they were interested in us producing stuff for like conference papers right but it was really yeah, tricky yeah. to like to go the extra step and kind of disseminate that any further um because it's not like you're getting you're you're not getting paid to go and publish on that work. You're getting paid to kind of finish this piece of the project, and 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 there might be a little bit extra that you can do, but you don't. Your job isn't centered around that knowledge dissemination, right? So you guys have cut yeah. a little bit ahead to something I was going to ask you about, which is that so the Society for American Archaeology or the RPA or these various organizations have um, their various codes of ethics, and these usually involve some form of research dissemination, and I know. Uh, Trevor, you've talked about the kind of the Vermont model, which requires um, this from CRM work. And as far as I know, that's pretty unique, I think, maybe in uh, in various jurisdictions. But how do you sort of square that idea of either a client who uh, doesn't want the research disseminated that you've done for them uh, with archaeological ethics or just the idea that um, archaeology needs to be shared with the public? And, yeah, and, so and I'm giving you a magic wand here. So you're you're totally allowed to say, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, no, we we've sinned greatly in the past, but were I God, this is what we'd change. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 tricky. Um, like I think in a blue sky world, you know, um, we would have no issues in um finding uh avenues for sharing and disseminating the 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 information that we're generating, right? Um, I think one of the important things to highlight too, uh, and Ken kind of touched on it or, or touched or danced around it maybe a little bit too, is that um, the other thing we have to highlight is, um, and I guess maybe before that too, I just want to back up and say, you know, I agree with what Ken said, like, you know, we've worked in consulting for a long time uh, and cons- CRM archaeology 
um, generates extremely important and necessary information and, and critical information. And it's helped us build a lot of important uh, uh, models and things like that. Um, well, there's that chunk uh, of time in the archaic. Was it 5,000 years we didn't know existed until uh, <laughs> until uh, yeah. UMF? Uh, archaeology consulting, yeah, the, uh, the Medibem site. Uh, yeah. Wasn't that... Oh, I know. I was thinking about the um, the Brigham and Shero. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah well, both. The, yeah. The, but, the, um... the great hiatus that ceased to cease to became less great and less of a hiatus. All of a sudden, <laughs> or more great and less of a hiatus. I'm not sure how that would break yeah. down, but yeah, yeah. But um, but yeah, it's um, I think you know, and you know the um, the uh the adolescent punk in me um, would hate to make more bureaucratic steps, but, um, and, or force people's hands. But I think Vermont is kind of uh, taking a, a, a right step and, you know, legislating a need um, uh, or I guess not legislating, but prescribing a need to disseminate the results um, as part of the permitting process. Um, and that was something they did um when they updated their guidelines in 2017, which um, I think um, is a good example of, of, I think a fairly comprehensive set of, of, of state guidelines. I haven't, I, I'll be honest, I haven't read a lot of the U S uh, um, um, state um, guidelines other than right in Vermont and, and New Hampshire and, and Maine, basically sort of the, the ones closest to home here, but um, um but it's very comprehensive and they, they, they took their time developing them. It's very um, collaborative with communities and things like that. But um, you know, so like I said, I, I, I'd, I'd be hesitant to legislate these things, but we have to find some impetus to um, incentivize um, or um, um, you know, presenting this information or disseminating this information somehow. So I just got the Vermont program. I think Trevor, you'll correct me on this. You've read it more recently. Is that for a phase three? I think which in the United States is a like a data a mitigation or a data recovery. Mm-hmm. If there's some percentage of the the bill for that data recovery goes to the client, which has to be for public archaeology. Is that exactly? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And 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 it doesn't need to be like I said. It's it, it's it's it can be. Um, there's a, a large list of things like it doesn't have to be a, some sort of publication that might be inaccessible to people who don't have, you know, access to a, sure. a, a academic journal or something like that. Right. Like it can be, you know, presentations at the local historic society. It can be um, things like that. It's, it's about getting that information out there to, you know, arguably the people who are paying for it to be done. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yeah. And, you know. and am I, am I not, wrong that that used to be something that we had to do in new brunswick as part of the budgeting process so didn't you have to set aside like a percentage set aside amount, a or was that certain only for percentage mitigation? for conservation in the event that things were found okay all right yeah yeah, yeah. so it, not for it, say presentation was, or publication no Public, no yeah. it was basically just to say to, to show that you've considered um you know um, the possibility of unearthing artifacts and that you're prepared to, you know, to at least do a preliminary, um, some sort of preliminary assessment and curation of them. Right. Basically. So can I, can I just ask, I mean, I, I feel like if I were, uh, made the, uh, major domo of, um, your mother archaeology, I would say, well, for, we would build this into the, the permitting process and we would have some, uh, 
kind of legal mechanism to require this. Do you guys think that's feasible? Would it be unfeasible? I think you could probably push for it. I, you know, I think we all are part of a professional association that uh, that probably would be one of the most effective ways to kind of mm-hmm. push something like that. But I, 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 it's, I wanted to build on some. So Trevor had mentioned when he was talking about sort of the differences between problem oriented archaeology and, and uh, um, CRM. And, and one of the things he talked about is that these tend to be publicly funded, right? The, in the, on the research side of things. Well, I think what you're getting at, Gabe, and, and we have talked about this a lot, the three of us, is that at the end of the day, a lot of CRM is actually publicly funded. And, and the real issue is that the public funds that are going into research-oriented archaeology tend to find their way back to a public benefit at some point, right? And I think that the real challenge with CRM is that you run into this, you're, you're kind of at a nexus of a number of different challenges, right? You're at um, kind of, you're, you're sort of stuck between uh, regulators and clients, um, between like projects and deadlines. Um, there might be, it might be a particularly like sensitive project. So you might have environmental or indigenous concerns or public concerns about the work it is that you're conducting. Um, and so uh, you you are always, you're very visible, um, you know, you're out there in front of things. And, and in some cases, you're doing work that uh, might actually be costing the public more by sort of, you know, it, uh, the, you find an archaeological site, it's going to delay things. It's like, uh, you know, so there's, there's some pushback that you could see from the public in the sense that, like, what is the benefit of doing archaeology if, number one, it's very expensive, um, number two, it's slowing things down, um, you know, I, I shared with my students this week a story that was in the Toronto Star last fall about the town of Lytton in BC that had burned to the ground um, a couple summers ago during wild and wildfires. And one of the things that was really concerning, it, it, it was the language in this article about some of the, like the mayor and the town councillors um, responding to uh, the archaeology that had been going on there and how archaeology had in some way kind of delayed um, reconstruction of some of these houses. And, and, and one of the quotes, um, was that, uh, one of the opposition members in parliament in the legislature said, what's gone on in Lytton ought to strike terror into the hearts of British Columbians everywhere. 840 days later, and none of the homes, uh, that the province has any responsibility over has been built yet. And, and both the mayor and this, this, uh, uh, member of the legislature were essentially, pointing blame at archaeology for slowing down this whole process, right? And and I think that giving back to the public and and the public being able to see what CRM can give back and, and what the benefit of CRM is, I think prevents this sort of like really dangerous political narrative that can come out the other side, which is that why are we doing archaeology um, and should we not do it or should we not do as much of it? And and uh, and that I think can have some really dangerous consequences, right? And and you know I think we're in a pretty tense political environment right now, and and you know where Twitter fires happen everywhere. Um, I I think that this could probably you know like this is you and I, Trevor, have worked on projects that I think in in a present day situation would be even more of a powder keg than uh, than Wayne Stickles found himself in, like what 20 years <laughs> 15 years ago 10 yeah. years ago now yeah. Yeah. you yeah, can't tease us with the wayne stickle story what's that are we gonna do wayne stickles in the show notes we could put wayne stickles in the show notes send me the link yeah. and I'll, I'll throw it in there <laughs> the, uh, the listener will enjoy wayne stickles yeah. 
the um but i i think you guys are are um are tapping into just one of these uh kind of key topics about all this which is that um as this gulf widens between crm and uh what we call problem oriented archaeology um the member of the general public has a real reason to wonder you know what they're paying for right because it's it they are paying for crm because as we pointed out crm becomes implicated only really when public funds are involved yeah well i mean if we're talking about you know um i can't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head but i mean transportation infrastructure makes up the the largest percentage of um you know the business sector that crm has done for in new brunswick right and you know if you consider that all of that is ultimately coming from public funds, right? Yeah. You know, transportation is coming from Department of Transportation and Infrastructure. Um, you know, when we're building bridges and highways and uh, and interchanges and all those kinds of things. And then, you know, um, on the power side of things, you know, we're, it's, we're dealing with Crown Corporation, right? So at the end of the day, it is all public funds. And, and just to touch on something that Ken mentioned too there in the end of what he was saying I, that I think is that, you know, we do, we have a professional obligation, you know, not only just to meet, you know, um, you know, the ethical guidelines that are are set out, um, you know, by the associations that we're all members of and things like that. But I, I think we also have a professional and ethical uh, ob- obligation to educate the public about yeah. archaeology because, you know, um, it's hard to get people on your side if they don't know what you're what your concerns are know what you're talking about or, or things like that. And, and, you know, uh, one of my favorite things that I still do uh, out of my entire career of the last 20 years is going in and talking to kids in schools about archeology. span And, you know, like, don't you find they like... smell a little weird though? <laughs> Sometimes it depends on the grade. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, like, especially like, kids from like you know grade two to like grade five age range like they're so excited about these things and if you can get you know people interested in in the past interested in our our shared history and culture and and all that stuff you know you can you you can try to create good stewards at a young age and people that are going to be recognized that you know archaeology is, is a, a you know a good thing for the collective public and that you know um these are things that are worthy of of investing time and public funds you know to do yeah so so trevor we, we've talked a bit about the um the the public oriented aspect of what you um of what you do but the listener can't see that you're actually essentially scrooge mcducking in a swimming pool of gold right now and i i think this might be the uh the point at which we we say that um uh crm has become lucrative has it not i mean i I think that we are we're looking at a dramatic uh shortage of graduate trained crm archaeologists um this work has to go forward we've seen news stories that suggest um even major uh like the green um Green development projects aren't going to go through unless we get more archaeologists uh, trained at the graduate level. And so I was sort of wondering if you could kind of sum up um, the what's the job, the labor situation basically in CRM right now. Well, we know that there's like an enormous crunch 
in the United States. You know, we have yeah. pretty good data. Agile and Klein article from, was that last year? It was just last year, I think. Right? Uh, they published that in 20, 2023? I think so. And it said we're, we're yeah. going to be 2,400 uh, MA archaeologists short. Yeah, something like that. And yeah. that you know, basically that um the the annual, I think they said the annual increase spending on on CRM is gonna go up to uh like one point eight or one point nine billion dollars due yeah. to the growth in the US economy. And that um, you know, um it's gonna basically lead to the creation of a, somewhere around like ten or eleven thousand new jobs in, in CRM fields and and um you know 70% of those are ones that require advanced degrees or something like that. Right. And, um, and based on current graduation rates, um, there's going to be a huge job deficit and um, we don't have as accurate data on this side of the border, but we are seeing the same crunch um, in places like Ontario and British Columbia and, and out West in particular. And, you know, uh, you know, I'm hearing it anecdotally from people, other people who work here in New Brunswick and in Nova Scotia and, and other places in, in Canada where, you know, there just aren't enough people um, yeah. to get we, the work we had done. A, we had like a round table discussion with a bunch of faculty uh, here in Alberta uh, just before the holidays um, representing, I think five of the universe, like the five or five of the universities that are teaching cultural resource management classes or have programming of some kind uh, specifically because the feedback that we're hearing from industry here in Alberta is basically that um, how are we going to get trained people in the field and how quickly can you get us um, number one sort of qualified field technicians, like not just warm bodies, like not somebody that you hand a shovel and go dig, like, um, but somebody who actually is kind of has an idea what's going on, might be able to write a technical report or a summary or something like that. Um, and and how can we get more permit holders out in the field, right? And and this is like Trevor said, it's anecdotal. It's challenging because we don't have, but the anecdotes seem to be growing uh, in number. And and uh, yeah. you know we have we have colleagues of ours, a dear friend and and friend of the show, Sarah Beanlands, who I, I got an email from today on another matter, who basically said like uh, we can talk next week, but I'll I'll be in the field. Uh, you know, uh, who's an owner Scotia. It's in Nova Scotia, but where there's a operator, foot of ground, foot of snow on the ground, right? Yeah, an owner operator of a business who, um, who's you know, uh, it sounds like has spent, uh, you know, anytime we talk, I think even when we talked to Daryl, it was sort of like, yeah, uh, send us, <laughs> send us your people, you know, yeah. the uh, so, but so just break this down a little bit more for me. I mean, so, I mean, maybe imagine you're talking to, uh, you know, like Trevor, I mean, I'm sure you do this in your classes. You're talking to a, let's say a 19 year old kid who's interested in archeology. span um, What are the career prospects, you know, in Atlantic Canada? I think the career prospects are, are pretty, uh, pretty good right now based on, you know, what we're seeing. Right. And um, there's seems to be no shortage of, development going on despite you know you know the current economic conditions and things like that um and you know i think it's um you know it's a field that we need to find ways to um better support um students in and and yeah. and um we think we need to do a better job recruiting students um to get into these kinds of programs 
and, you know, selling them on, you know, the fact that, you know, it, it can be a really well-paying job in a lot of, uh, in a lot of situations. Yeah. Yeah. So I certainly didn't know what CRM was until I was a, a ways into my undergraduate degree. Was, was yeah. that true for you guys as well? Yeah. I mean, I, like, I, I will admit, um, you know, I, I didn't realize that archaeology was any kind of career until my third year of, you know, like undergraduate, uh, which yeah. is like essentially the third time I had steered the ship towards what, what is going to be my, my major of, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Listen, sort of you, you, you just, you just learned the secret to CRM, which is the second time you flunk calculus, you become a CRM archaeologist. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, and, I'm and always so, fond of, uh, I was going to say, I'm always fond of telling my students it's, why I took a liberal arts degree was so I didn't have to do calculus anymore. <laughs> yeah. And, and if, um, for those of you who are like for, if there's a student listening to this and you're kind of wondering like, um, where do I find these opportunities? Uh, when are they starting to show up and that kind of thing? I can tell you that um, I kind of keep a close eye on this because I, I teach CRM in the, what we call the spring semester. Uh, it, it, at University of Lethbridge, we're very hopeful. We don't call it the winter semester. We call it spring. Um, That's nice. Uh, dis despite the fact that spring is only about like two weeks of the entire semester. I think they're going to call it, it the Chinook semester. Uh, well, that's all. Those are all years. Every you get a oh. you get a migraine at any time of the year here. Oh, I see. Um, that's uh, but um, so if you're looking for jobs, uh, uh, I can I can assure you there are postings basically around the year around the, like basically year round now, which which never used to be the case even when I started in industry. Um, there's kind of resource sites that you can go to. So there's a, a site called TwinCairns.com. Um, we'll put uh, in the show notes. Uh, there's shovelbums.org, which is kind of an international website where you could do uh, jobs in the US um, and then and then you know go to Australia in the winter uh, in nor the northern hemisphere and go do CRM in another part of the world. archaeologyfieldwork.com uh, uh, jobs in the UK are on badger.org uh, so the British archaeological um, what can I think of the J? Uh, I have no idea. Um, and then there are like, and then LinkedIn um, and uh, a number of these job sites in, like Indeed um, and uh, a lot of societies and professional associations will post jobs as well. Um, and so yeah. companies usually put out uh, kind of social media blasts and we'll distribute them through the Canadian Archaeological Association, um, uh, Society for American Archaeology. Uh, but if you're a student looking for somebody for employment as somebody who only took up CRM in, in the last year of my undergrad, um, fantastic way to make money in the summer, get a chance to get some real archaeological field experience. Uh, sometimes you might even be lucky enough to do like some excavation work or something like that. But it'll also give you a sense too, um, if you're thinking about going on to do graduate work, uh, whether or not you want to pursue CRM as a, as a career, right? Like, I mean, it's not for everybody. It's hard. Like, you know, you're, you, you're on the road a lot. Um, you know, Trevor, Trevor and I, reached a point in our careers where we were able to not be in the field um, uh, from, you know, uh, basically April until the, the wee days of December. Um, but that's not how you start out in the industry, right? You, you spend a lot of time away from home and family. Trevor, Trevor was essentially, I spent more time with Trevor in my twenties than I think I spent with any member of my family, <laughs> any friend of any other group of my friends. I friend was going to say, I think, and my now wife, you know, like I was uh, gonna say, 
there was about a three or four year period, I think, where we spent more time together than we did with our respective partners. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and and which is which in is my experience, because... you guys were in such a good mood on the Route 11 project. I just didn't I wouldn't have known that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and so so it's uh, it's something that I think you should experience before deciding that this is going to be your career. But uh, but there are a growing number of programs, I think, that are coming online after what seemed like years of kind of cuts to these programs geared towards CRM education. I think this drive for employment is changing that scene. And I think that universities mm. are pretty slow ships to steer. Um, but uh, but I think that, you know, uh, I think me having a job at University of Lethbridge in the position that I do, I think is a case in point that there is um, interest and need uh, for for this kind of programming that is going to gear people up for uh, these kinds of jobs, right? Because it is different than doing a master's where uh, you plan to just go on to do a PhD, right? There, I, I think there is a yeah. benefit to having specific training in the kind of technical aspects of doing CRM um, and and getting exposure to what the day to day is like, and and knowing things like how technical writing is different than academic writing. You know, how writing an email with a subject line, um, a salutation. And using a signature like, uh, you know, that which is, I think, foreign to anybody using email today. Uh, emails look more and more like text messages for my students. But in, in my CRM class, I actually I make them email me as if they're emailing a client so that they can actually practice professional communication, because I, uh, these are skills that I think are critical. Right. And, and uh, that just don't exist sometimes in a conventional degree training. No, I was just going to piggyback on that and say, I think it's I think it's crucial to. Um, to have more programs like this, because like Ken said, like it is very different than what we might think of as traditional archaeology. There is the whole business side of it, you know, you know, learning how to manage people and personalities and, you know, do things like basic accounting or understanding how to properly scope a project, like um, develop cost estimates, you know, how to manage, manage your clients and their, their expectations, right? Like, and, you know, how to do proper consultation with Indigenous communities and partners and things like that. These are all, I think, essential um, skills that, you know, good students um, that are looking to have a career in archaeology need to kind of uh, uh, kind of work on developing, right? I do. I do like, too, though, that you also pick up skills like when you're in the field. So. Um, oh yeah, I like to show That's right. off. Some, some my... of you have never rolled a cigarette in the. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I like to show. I like to show off to my students or any time I'm in the field that I can cut a a test pit that's about fifty centimeters, give or take, like maybe, I don't know, three to five millimeters, uh, on e on every edge without pulling out a tape because I can just pick up a shovel and dig that hole. Uh, uh, right, right into the. Because we that all you know the exact width of every shovel blade. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, and so I would be remiss here in this discussion if I didn't acknowledge the the great Drew Ross, who was my first crew chief when I was nineteen. and didn't know what I was doing, and uh, and and was a real saint in teaching me how to uh, do CRM in Maryland. Um, but you guys have kind of opened up, I think, a real uh, just a quick thing we should discuss, which is, um, so you want to be a CRM archaeologist. What kind of academic training do you need to do to do archaeology in New Brunswick or do CRM more broadly? Um, what advice would you give to a student who's listened to the show and said, this sounds like a fun life for me? Um, riff on that for a minute for me. 
Yeah, I think, well, as far as what kind of training you need, I mean, you need, um, you know, um, an undergraduate degree in, in anthropology or, or archaeology, but you also need an, an advanced degree, usually an MA or in some jurisdictions except uh, MSCs, because there are um, schools where uh, archaeology falls under the um, um, faculty of science. But um, but yeah, most most jurisdictions, uh, or I should say a, a large number of them require you to have at least an MA. There are still several jurisdictions in Canada that only require a, a bachelor's degree to to do archaeology. But um, um, I, and the other thing too is that a lot more jurisdictions are moving to the route where you, on top of that, need to have also completed some kind of academic field school. Um, yep. You know, and that's you know the. Um, um, one of the things that we've seen in the last, I don't know, last decade for sure, or maybe the last five years is, you know, the registered professional archaeologists accrediting, you know, um, or um, uh, is it, yeah, I think it's accrediting the field yeah, schools yeah. or whatever, meeting their uh, accreditation um, guidelines for what is an appropriate field school. But I mean, you know, if you don't, can't get that experience working CRM, you know, a field school is, um, I think critical. I think everybody needs to have that experience of what it's like to live in close quarters with your fellow classmates, and uh, uh, and you can uh, you can have just that experience at the Northeast Archaeological Survey's RPA certified field school coming this uh, summer, twenty twenty four. That's right, RPA four. You can you can get the full the full gay writing experience. You you can live with me for a few weeks. It's uh, it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so as Trevor alluded to, like uh, advanced degrees in a lot of places um, and those that require just a bachelor degree, it's usually equivalent field work experience yeah. and supervisor experience. One of the pieces, biggest pieces of advice that I would give to anybody who starts out in CRM uh, that I did not do and that I've had to scramble twice in my career now to actually like rebuild is start a spreadsheet. Basically, every project that you work on, talk to your crew chief. Uh, yep. Find out the details about what the name of the project is, what the permit number is, um, and keep track of how many weeks or how many hours you worked on it. Um, maybe make some notes about whether or not mm -hmm. you found anything and what time period that dated to, whether it was a walkover, a test pit, uh, you just dug test pits, um, maybe you did some mapping, maybe you did a full-scale excavation of like an archaic site or something like that. Keep all that stuff and make a note of it. Um, it makes your updating your CV easier and... A lot of jurisdictions um, require that you actually document this stuff in some great detail. And so I've twice in my career in applying to Ontario and now going through the process of applying to become eligible in, in Alberta, have had to basically go through my CV and remember, you know, what is now 16 years ago, uh, what the names of the projects were. Um, how long I was in the field on that particular project and what we did, um, which is a painful experience. Um, and, uh, and, and I think would just be a, a, a way to save yourself a lot of time um, to document your career, basically. Yeah, that is fantastic yeah, advice. I was just going to say that's really great advice because I too had the experience of painstakingly having to sift back through 17 years of field work when I applied for my R license in, uh, in Ontario and, yeah. uh, yeah, but Ken's right. It, it's a really good idea. And, and there are more jurisdictions that are going towards that route where you have to, where you want to apply for, um, um, getting a permit or, or becoming, um, 
recognized as a professional archaeologist in that jurisdiction. You need to be able to document a lot of these experiences uh, and show that you've you've gained that um, um, you know field experience or expertise or whatever we want to whatever yeah. we want to call it. But, and, and so and I the, talked a little. Oh, sorry, go ahead. And and one final sort of like some of Ken's hot tips, and and this is another thing. Um, I get my students. Ken's actually... Hot Tips was actually a chicken restaurant he ran in Fredericton <laughs> before he went out to Alberta. But um, I do a bonus assignment with my students when I teach CRM. And it is that if they submit to me a CV and a cover letter, I will review it for formatting, for content, and give them some feedback and stuff like that so that when they go to apply for jobs, they've got something that's a little bit cleaner. And, and um, if you're looking for, if you're applying for a job in the next couple of months, if you're a student listening to this program, the best advice I can give you is do not use a Microsoft Word template for a resume to fill out what it is. Look up the professor is in.com yep. um, or, or some other academic CV structure. Uh, just Google academic CV formatting, something like that um, to build a CV. Don't, don't apply with a resume. Make yourself look like a professional because what you're entering into is a professional field, right? And on your cover letter, make clear what your experience is. You don't need to, nobody's expecting you to have dug every site and have all sorts of information. But you know what? If you took a course on, on um, uh, material analysis, highlight that. Say what kinds of material you worked with and that you would be able to readily identify in a test pit, for example, right? Have you screened material? Do you understand kind of the basic processes of archaeology? Um, and it's okay if all the work that you've ever done is working in a gas station, um, because anybody who starts out in archaeology probably didn't do archaeology before they applied for this job. If you've got a field school, drive home what kind of skills you picked up from the field school. Don't downplay your university education or some of the practical experience that you have. If you were a laborer, if you uh, uh, hauled trees uh, at a tree plantation, or you picked strawberries for an entire summer, or, you know, you worked on a, a construction crew. Those are all really excellent transferable skills uh, in an industry that, you know, you would understand safety, you'd understand what uh, personal protective equipment is, um, you would understand what a, like a hard work day is and what physical labor is. And that's all stuff that an employer is going to be looking for when they're trying to evaluate you based on this document, because they're not going to see you first, they're going to see this sheet of paper, the PDF that you send them. And, and I think, unfortunately, and I tell this to students every year, is that I think I probably passed over dozens of really qualified people that applied to jobs that I was the person that was reviewing their resumes and, and trying to make a, you know, taking 300 resumes and paring it down to 30 field techs. Um, the ones that you misspell things are just getting tossed out. I don't care how much uh, what your background is. It's, it's just, we have to, you, there's a process of elimination and, and you don't want to get eliminated just by some, like you used three different colors and eight different fonts on the front page of your CV. Um, yeah. Uh, Comic Sans is a real winner listener. I, I'm told <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that they, yeah. both Eagle so. 4 and uh, Stantec. Um, so, so that's right. Listener. So Ken has offered, if you send in your CV to Ken, he will, he will proofread it, <laughs> your cover letter, whatever you want. Um, so gentlemen, I am mindful of our, uh, status, which is getting lower and lower. Um, and so I assume the listeners Covassier is also getting lower and lower. So I thought one thing we should do is just, um, ask Trevor quick to kind of summarize this research he's been doing. Um, in what I believe is our forthcoming uh, 
uh, or maybe third coming or even second coming um, or, or fifth coming. We don't know. Uh, paper, uh, back dirt and bureaucracy revisited, which is of course named for the, uh, the, the, I think it's, it's, is it regionally seminal? I think that might be the phrase we're going for here. Chris Turnbull yeah. paper by the same name, um, in which we describe the shifts in New Brunswick away from research, uh, archaeology, and, uh, in which Trevor primarily describes all sorts of ramifications of that about what, uh, we know about archaeology in the region, what we should know. So Trevor, take it away. Yeah, I think, uh, like you said, it's, this is, um, the title sort of riffs on, uh, on Chris's work. Um, um, but you know, in, in his, his early work, I mean, we should highlight for those who don't know, Chris Turnbull was the first provincial archeologist in New Brunswick. He's the first person hired by what was then the, uh, I think referred to as the historic, uh, historical resources administration office. Um, and, you know, he kind of developed, you know, archeology span as it was practiced, um, in New Brunswick provincially, um, you know, up until that point, things had been sort of um, covered by, you know, the Archaeological Survey of Canada and, and people like that coming out of uh, out of Ottawa. Um, but, you know, Turnbull kind of warned us even, you know, back in the early to mid 1970s that, um, you know, as sort of academic archaeology um was was going to wane and it was going to stagnate and and crm archaeology and salvage work was going to um become the focus of government archaeologists they you, they could see that even you know 40 years ago and um i think the results that we have sort of um um uh presented in our paper you know indicate that his concerns were well founded you know um we see that you know in the in the the data that we look at, the earliest uh, data about the kind of work that was going on in the province, we see that, you know, um, research accounted for, you know, or problem-oriented archaeology accounted for, um, you know, about a third of uh, the amount of work that was going on in the province. Um, and, you know, as sort of successive iterations of of policy documents and guidelines and things like that have, have come out, we've seen sort of um, this real shift in focus on the type of work that's going on um and um you know to the point where you know as as of now you know those sort of traditional research uh, oriented or problem oriented archaeological uh, projects you know are are making up you know less than 3% of the kind of work that's going on um and the other thing that we are kind of seeing too is that you know the work that um, you know, exactly what Turnbull was concerned about the work that, you know, the archaeology, um, the government archaeology branches are, are, are doing is, are, um, you know, getting much more focused on, um, um, salvage work and, um, you know, you know, monitoring sort of this, this, um, 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 ballooning CRM industry that we have, uh, in the province and in the region and, and things like that. And, um, you know, what we're seeing is sort of um, spiraling out of this and this lack of, of, of focus on problem-oriented research and things like that too is um, um, there's a decline in things like um, faunal analysis and, and, you know, sort of the shift um, um, uh, has implications for sort of, you know, the robustness of, of regional research. You know, we're not seeing, you um, 
the kinds of site monographs and analyses and things like that, that you, you know, were very common in the, in the 1970s and 1980s mm-hmm. and even in the early 1990s. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think that's a crucial but, point. Yeah. There's a, there's a great quote in, in Turnbull's 1977 paper um, and it's archaeology has entered in a small way, the political arena. And I think that, yeah, I think what we, what, what Trevor's work has demonstrated is basically that it's not even in a small way, the political arena. I think that there is like, I think that there are kind of far reaching political implications of, of uh, what's been going on since the 1970s and in, uh, in uh, another great term, archae- archaeo bureaucratic institutions, yeah. basically. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, uh, that's a, uh... You know, maybe the political arena is is where we should leave this, gentlemen. Do you think that we are uh, on to hit pieces? I I I think we uh, I think we might head on to hit pieces here. But we got to leave Trevor on because I think the first hit piece. I'll pause here for a minute while Ken cues the music, listener. I think the first hit piece actually involves Trevor. We're gonna have it. Is this our first guest star on a hit piece? I think I think Trevor, you are officially our first guest hit piecer. Trevor, did, did you date Harriet Irving in uh, in in high school? Is that uh, <laughs> yeah? Is that Back in my day, yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, but there's a there's a new exhibit at the Harriet Irving Library that I think is up through the uh, mid February, I think, right, Trevor? Yeah, up until um, yeah, sometime in the mid uh, end of February. Yeah, it's, we're, uh, we're we're hoping at least through at least to February twentieth, uh, so I yes. so I can I can actually see it. <laughs> I bet they're gonna rip it down on the nineteenth again. It's oh yeah, yeah, probably, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah uh, but yeah, it's uh, entitled "Writing New Brunswick Archaeology," and uh, myself and Ken and Gabe um, have all worked together to pull this together, but. Um, it's funny, um, funny. Ken wasn't there when we were putting it together. I don't yeah, know. What was going no, on. no. I think, he... I, think, I think my involvement can be downplayed pretty significantly on this one. <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> answering some text yeah. messages and providing yeah. some images, I think, was the yeah. extent of my involvement in this. Yeah. Mostly sending yeah. text messages demanding images. In this, my recollection, uh, we, we're we're, yes. we're we're getting close to uh, uh, a gift uh, gift authorship here uh, <laughs> uh, on the on the third. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah i don't know i don't know about that but but uh but yeah i mean this exhibit um sort of is uh come out of uh another project that we have going on the new brunswick archaeology uh bibliography project um which is sort of a project that um we have that sort of geared towards or or or, or, or the goal of is to sort of inventory all the published material about uh archaeology in new brunswick um so uh, this uh, exhibit sort of highlights some of those um, those key, I think, uh, uh, manuscripts and publications and books that sort of really um, um, were instrumental in writing New Brunswick archaeology and writing the history of um, uh, the last, you know, 13,000 years uh, in what is now New Brunswick. That's right. And so we, we've got uh, basically books beginning, I think, uh, with like uh, or, or publications beginning with uh, G.F. Matthews, 1884 account at Bocabeck, uh, right. running all the way up through, I think, to the far northeast, 3000 BP to contact by uh, edited by Ken and me. Uh, in between right. there, we've got stuff by uh, Russell, uh, Blair, Sanger, Black. Yeah. You know, it's the real yeah, greatest. Morehead. Hit. 
more head to thrive. I was gonna yep. say, and also, uh, despite it being called writing New Brunswick Archaeology, um, more and more heads. Nineteen uh, was that nineteen twenty two? Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. Report on the archaeology of Maine is uh, is also sort of really crucial in understanding uh, early New Brunswick culture history as well. He but, he crossed in New Brunswick, and he he yeah probably for for the best did not find all of those red paint cemeteries that he had found in Maine. Yeah. yeah, thankfully for all of us. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, and then other uh, other important books like um, 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 Russell Harper's uh, Portland Point. Uh, yeah. You know, that's a really sort of uh, I think important project that highlights sort of this this uh, this nexus of uh, of an early seventeenth uh, um, century fortification on top of you know a four thousand year old indigenous archaeological site. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And so the listener who wants to see that, you get yourself over to the Harriet Irving Library. It's at the University of New Brunswick campus and get yourself up to the third floor at the in top Frederick, of the steps. The Fredericton campus. Sorry. Fredericton yeah, campus, that, yeah. That's right. I did, sorry. I, I, we can just leave it at, I, I'd said all they need to know. Is, is there another campus? <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and on the third floor, cut left and you will encounter um, kind of a bank of, uh, display cases that looks a little bit like if you went to the kind of high school i did the kind that usually would have um like bronze basketballs with the <laughs> yeah the you yeah. know what what year uh fencing and water polo trophies yeah 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 i think uh, well I, did, I didn't know you went to andover just like warren king warhead but sure that's yeah. okay yeah pictures pictures of a lot of people in very short shorts absolutely yeah. and and we've included those we have each author standing beside their book in very short shorts the uh, exactly yeah. it's easy to find for the more recent ones but uh but check it out <laughs> and uh and uh we hope you enjoy it and i think we've got a few other hit uh hit pieces tonight we've got um uh a, a book from 2023 which only recently came across my desk by hillary dota um, and I've only read the first maybe 30 pages or so, but it seems very interesting. And it's called Fashioning Acadians, Clothing in the Atlantic World, 1650 to 1750. It's a McGill-Queens Press uh, publication. And um, what I think the listener might find interesting, as I have so far about this book, is that it focuses very heavily on um, particularly metal uh, fashion like accoutrement, you know, buttons, pins, this kind of thing from um, Acadian outfits during this period. Very cool. It looks very good. And um, I think uh, we're, we'll probably talk to this person, try to have them on. Yeah, yeah, I think it'd be great. Yeah. As somebody who's teaching a, a, essentially a historical archaeology course, I'm uh, getting further and further ensconced in this world. And so, I yeah, Ken, Ken and I have fun. already actually... I said I only read the first 20 pages. I did flip through it uh, in a rather earnest manner, collecting key quotes for a teaching project last semester. But, the, <laughs> yeah, but I'm actually yeah, reading excellent. it this term. Yeah. Yeah. And then I believe uh, our final hit piece, Ken, is this uh, you? Uh, I don't know. What oh, else I, is it there? It can be me. I think we're going to just flag that the Society for American Archaeology has oh, recently right. released their uh, NAGPRA update, and it's sort of a fact sheet about changes to the Native American graves uh, um, uh, repatriation act in the United States. Protection yes. and Repatriation Act. Yeah, and you... that is gonna, is available. We'll put the link in the show notes. And yeah. um, it there's not much to say about it, except that I think 
a uh, couple of key updates. One, which is that if you run a CRM company that got uh, payroll protection money in the United States uh, during COVID, you are now under NAGPRA and you should be aware of that because that's a federal law and you want to make sure you're compliant. Uh, and the other thing I think we want to note in particular um, from this is that it, I think, emphasizes uh, what was already a law in NAGPRA, or already codified in NAGPRA, which is that there are a number of different ways that um, uh, lineal descent can be interpreted for human yeah. remains or for ceremonial remains. And these do not just have to be a genetic relationship. And so... Yeah, cultural um, affiliation is what it's referred to in the in the in the the act itself, basically. Yep, that's yeah. right. And so, cultural affiliation uh, includes things like oral tradition, and so um, that's an important, um, I guess, re-emphasis. And I think maybe the third thing I would just highlight from this, but you should really, if you're doing archaeology in the United States, you should probably read the whole update. Um, is that if you are a state recognized tribe, but not a federally recognized tribe, um, your uh, rights under NAGPRA have changed somewhat. You, you're going to want to be aware of that. And so you, you'd want to partner with a federally recognized tribe for your repatriation in the future is my read of the new legislation and um, of the update. But you should yep. check into I, that I think... and it's relevant in the Northeast. Yeah, and the listeners should know that we are working on getting somebody... Um an expert to come in and uh, onto the show to actually talk to us about NAGPRA more generally, but also um, what these, what the implications of these changes are for the industry um, and, uh, and for archeologists uh, working across the United States, although it's not New Brunswick um, uh, you know, I think this is pretty important. This is pretty foundational legislation in 1990 um, that uh, I, I think that um, without question is something uh, should be of interest to anybody who's interested in archeology. span yeah, and I, and I certainly, I mean, I'm happy to put myself out there as being an advocate for federal heritage legislation in Canada. Yeah, uh, I, have a, I have a sense that my colleagues on this call are as well, and that that federal legislation would include something resembling NAGPRA here in Canada. It, it won't on the first iteration, I'm sure, but uh, uh, hopefully sometime soon. The, uh, well, I see, I see, I think it might be Nikki Haley who's marching us, or maybe it's Ron DeSantis. I can't tell. Marching outside with a with a banner that says "NAGPRA to Canada now," which I think may be the relevance right now of the Republican oh, primary. No. So, oh no, yeah, yeah. yeah. The uh, uh, well, do we have any more hippies? I think we've perhaps covered the the gamut there. I think we have. exceeded youtube's allowable time limit um and so uh, i don't know about you gabe but i'm looking at a a, a more than half empty bottle of corvassier the, uh, yeah i'm looking at a half finished magnum of corvassier <laughs> and i and i i think i think trevor is uh is he's just done that thing that they do he's it's like he's won a sporting event he just poured a gatorade uh multi-liter container of corvassier over his head his, yeah <laughs> and 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 he's now running around like he's won the super bowl and it's a yeah. uh, very and, odd and experience should, for us. Yeah, the listeners should know that Trevor has it's it's uh it is our podcast anniversary in New Brunswick right now, and and so I think we uh we owe him uh, a bedtime, uh and we and it might be uh time to say thank you again, Trevor, for coming on the show and yes, for sharing you, your expertise, your knowledge about CRM. Uh, it's always great to catch up with you too, and uh, we look forward to having you on the show again and. Uh, seeing you at the live show on February 20th at uh, Pick Runes. 
from 6 to 9 p.m. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. And uh, yeah, let's see everybody at the uh, live show where you can win some uh, fun swag, hopefully. That's right. It'll it'll come out of our waterproof you go for backpack so quickly you won't even know what happened. It's uh, <laughs> you'll you'll recognize Ken and I because we will be wearing those waterproof ego for backpacks. Uh, yeah. So other than the swag you'd like to give us, Trevor, is there anything you'd like to leave the listener with? Uh, to quote uh, the great uh, Bill and Ted, just be excellent to each other. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> yeah. Be excellent so, to each other, listeners, and uh, and we'll see you in a fortnight. We'll see you in a fortnight. We'll talk to you in a fortnight. Thanks very much, Trevor. It's a treat as always. And uh, take care, everyone. We'll see. You, we'll talk to you soon. Happy twenty twenty four.